So Joel from Croatia, the floor is yours. Hi everybody, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, about five weeks ago, I just celebrated uh, 15 years. So um, <clears throat> start, with the, start with the good news before the bad. Uh, I pretty much just can go in chronological order. I did make some notes here, some, some things that I wanted to touch, touch on. Uh, when I was a child, I, I was uh, the kind of child I was. I, I got horrible grades. I hated school. I was uh, loud uh, at home. At school, not couldn't be loud because, of course, you get in trouble there and twice as worse at home. It was a Catholic grade school I went to. Um, I had way too much energy, way too much. I was always getting in trouble. I was always causing trouble. I was always starting fights with my siblings. I have two brothers, two sisters. Um, my parents uh, came, were born in the 30s, lived through the Depression, uh, stayed married up until last June when my dad passed, which was close to, I don't know, 68 years or something total time they had together. Uh, the one thing, um, let's see, I think it's important to mention that as a child, I did get smacked around by my parents, especially my dad. I got bloodied a few times, bloody nose, a few times from my dad, which was pretty ugly and violent. Um, uh, once by my mom, I remember, um, which uh, always, I always felt loved at home. And I always had everything I needed, a warm house, good food, clean clothes, clean house, everything like that. We didn't have lots of money, but uh, my parents took good care of us other than, and I'm not justifying their actions. I still uh, think that violence in any case is wrong, but uh, uh, other than getting smacked around by my parents, we had, uh, things were good, which was most of the time, you know, getting hit, uh, was was few and far between, but it did happen. I think the last time I really got hit um, was around 12 or 13 years old. Um, so what it was like, I started drinking to a blackout uh, the first time I got drunk. I, I, I think Bill Wilson talks about it in the big book. I'm not an avid big book dumper guy and have anything memorized, but I believe he said the first time he got drunk, he felt like a completely different person. I too, I had, uh, as, a, as a youngster also, I developed a very severe stutter uh, from about the week after I started first grade. So from the first time I got drunk at 16 into a blackout, I thought I was uh, like, I was a completely different person. I don't know if I stuttered or not, but I thought I was uh, good looking and funny. And, and like, I was the leader of the group and I came up with all the bad ideas from there on out. Um, so, you know, what happened the next 30 years, I drank, I got drunk, um, the last six weeks, I mean, there's not too much to tell, you know, I'm not going into war stories and things, you know, what happens to, uh, to people, one's not enough and 20 is too many. Uh, but the last six weeks of my drinking, things got very, very strange. I, I, I never was told that I, that I should quit drinking. Um, and I've got some a list of what I call yets coming up soon here. But um, the last six weeks of drinking was very bizarre. All sorts of weird things were happening. I fell down a flight of stairs. 
I, for some reason, climbed up on the roof of this very, very high house to get a picture of the sunset. Um, I mean, I drove, I backed out to a garage door when I thought I had opened it, but did not. Uh, what was the other thing? Oh, I used to disappear for like an hour, two hours at a time in the middle of a party or dinner party, things like that. And my last night of drinking, I promised myself I was not going to get drunk. It was at my own house. Um, I was a chef. I've been cooking professionally for 45 years this June. And uh, so I was cooking a dinner party and I said, I will not get drunk tonight. And I had more alcohol that night than I've ever had in my life. I never one time thought I've had enough. This is good. Stop now. I kept drinking and it was uh, scotch, wine, beer, anything that was in the kitchen. I was drinking it. Um, the only thing in early sobriety that kept me coming back was hope, because honestly, I really didn't like AA. I was embarrassed that I that I had to go, though it was my own free will. I woke up one day after that heavy drunk. I woke up in the afternoon and said, I can never drink again. I have no idea where that came from or why I said it. I've never said it before. I've never been told that I should never drink again. Um, but I said, I can never drink again. And I had uh, my second wife at that point. And I, I looked at her and she loved to drink. We were, we were good when we were drinking together. We were not good when we were sober together. And I could see in her face right then that I kind of killed the relationship. And a year later on that day, uh, we split up. Um, so it, um, so that was, a, I was 45 years old. I never saw a pink cloud. I don't know what people are talking about when they're saying, ah, well, actually someone's got a picture of a, a pink cloud on here. I just looked down there, Tracy S from Canada. She's got a pink cloud. I never saw one. I was told you're the angriest person we've ever seen come in the program. And I remember at least three people telling me, you are never going to make it. You're never going to stay sober. Now, who in the hell in the right mind would go tell someone that, a newcomer? Uh, the two guys that told me that went out in the next couple of weeks. They both went back out. And the female that told me that, ironically, came here to Croatia to this bed and breakfast. We had a, a recovery yoga retreat here. And she was one of the people that came. And she said, do you remember when I told you that you were never going to make it? And I said, yeah, I guess I do. She said, I don't know what I was talking about. I said, yeah, I quickly realized that. Um, not that there was any guarantee. I didn't think I would make it, but I didn't want to hear it from somebody else. You know, I just wanted the love and support. Um, but I was, I was very angry. Um, I would say I came in with a pretty high bottom because um, my list of yes that I have, and this is, I don't know if everyone's ever heard this, your yes, it's, I had, Never gotten fired yet. I'd never uh, cheated on a partner, girlfriend or wife. I never cheated on. I'd never been homeless yet. Uh, I'd never gotten a DUI or been arrested. Um, and the last yet is, is the one today uh, that still haunts me today. And this one was a really big one. I never killed somebody from vehicular homicide, which I was absolutely convinced that was going to happen to me. I was going to skip all the getting fired, getting a DUI. I was going to skip all that. I was going to hit somebody one day and kill them because I drove often. I drove very often drunk, almost every night, probably my last 15 years. Uh, I even had it visualized. I knew what kind of vehicle it was going to be. I knew the family was going out for ice cream and I killed like the mom and this daughter or something and 
there's like blood and antifreeze running down the uh, asphalt. So I had, it was really, I'm sorry if that's too, too grotesque for people to visualize, but that's what I did. And honest to God, during some really difficult times in sobriety, that thought kept me sober. I said, there's no way I could do that. Like, imagine life in prison would be hell, but living with the fact that you killed somebody. I've met people that have killed somebody uh, while they were drunk before. And then just this past summer, a friend of mine, her brother was hit by, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, this still, still hurts for me to think about this. Her brother was hit and killed by a drunk driver, head on 70 miles an hour collision. And I still think to myself, that could have been me. I still feel guilty about her brother dying like that. Um, so those are my, my list of yes. I felt like all that stuff was coming, but for sure I was going to kill somebody. Um, the things I wanted when I uh, decided to get sober, the, the one thing I've wanted in my life, my whole life, since I can remember, was calmness. I wanted to be that that calm guy in the storm. And that's, <laughs> ironically, that's not me. Um, um, well, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, I've also wanted uh, self-love and respect, which honestly, I never had. I always felt that I was a failure. Um, I was some kind of a person that should be felt sorry for. Um, I always wanted great relationships with people. And I knew I had two close friends, which they're still my friends today that we were from, uh, we met when we were 15 and I'm 60 now. So, and I always wanted emotional and spiritual growth. I mean, I was born and raised a, a Catholic, but I, at the age of 26, I left, uh, I left the church and I, I should have done it when I was 15, except you didn't live in my parents' house if you didn't go to church. They're very strict Catholics, still are. Well, my dad passed, so uh, he's not so much. Um, but the thing, uh, in 99, I started to study Buddhism, and I took my refuge vows into a Buddhist sangha. It, eventually, I took my bodhisattva vows, which is the next level, which is when you really start uh, dedicating your life to helping others. Um, and, and helping other people in this program is, is the most important thing, I think, I think I can do. Um, I won't speak for anybody else. And at times that's really difficult because actually I'm an introvert um, that I can certainly play the role of an extrovert for short periods of time as I was a, a chef and I did appearances on TV and magazines, newspapers, radio shows, things like that. And then I went into teaching school. I taught culinary arts um, in different schools so I've played the part of uh, extrovert, but I'm actually an introvert. So helping people sometimes, um, and I know from knowing myself that, that I can get long-winded, which I will try not to do today. Um, and, and, and I think there's quite a few, especially newcomers, they've got a lot to get rid of. You know, They've got a lot to speak about. A guy called me last night um, here in Croatia. He's not Croatian, he's Canadian, but... Uh, we've kind of got to be buddies and he went on and on and on and uh, asked me if it was a good time. I said, well, it's just about to eat dinner, but still went on and talked for an hour. And I thought, okay, you know, my dinner can wait or be reheated or whatever the case is. But um, so the things, yeah. So the things I've wanted in sobriety, uh, the calmness thing has, 
you know, it's, it, I have to be honest with you guys, especially because you're a, a group of people that I can actually feel comfortable being honest and open with. That hasn't really worked out so well for me. Um, here in Croatia, I don't really speak the language enough to, to, um, to get around on my own very well. I can do certain things on my own. One thing I should have said is my last year and a half, events that have happened are kind of life-changing events. A year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with stage four uh, cancer. I've got non-Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma. And five months after that, uh, my wife and I split up. And five months after that, my dad passed. So I don't have my interpreter anymore, which was my wife. Um, so when I go to doctor's offices, which I do way too often, um, there's, it's a strange place. It's very, very different from anything I've ever experienced. The office managers, I don't know if they're nurses or not, but they're very uh, rude and arrogant and they change things. Like every time I, I just drove for an hour last week to go to a doctor. And then she told me, she said, this isn't how we do it anymore. I said, well, no one told me that. I have all my paperwork in line. You've never been here before. I said, ma'am, I've had seven skin cancer surgeries here. Oh, you know, and she kept playing all these little games with me. And I told her, I said, every time I come here and deal with you, there's problems. And every time I deal with the other lady, things seem to go okay. She, she would not let me see a doctor. I had to drive all the way back home. So it was two hours, about three hours wasted out of my day, not to mention the gas that's a, a dollar, what, 1.5 euros per liter. So oftentimes, the other day I was in another doctor's office, um, I'm hearing impaired as well, partially from chemotherapy. Uh, but there's a, one of the patients got into a screaming, yelling match with the lady in the office. And that's the way it is almost every single time. Even my nurse from my GP, my general practitioner, she told me, she said, Joe, I'm a nurse and they treat me like that. She said, we get into screaming, yelling matches. She said, it's very normal. Don't feel like you're making things up. But honestly, you guys, you probably can understand this. I don't want to be one of those people, you know? The other day when I walked in the doctor's office, I thought if she, if she gives me any shit, I'm going to leave. That's all there is to it. I, it's not worth being here for that. So, but that one went okay, uh, the audiologist uh, um, appointment. Um, so the biggest thing that I really need to be working on and where my whole path of sobriety has taken me is to emotional sobriety. Um, you know, that's the number one reason why I think I felt I needed to quit drinking. The afternoon I woke up after the heavy night of drinking, the, the, the most persistent thought I had in my head was your mom and dad showed you how to have a good life and you pissed it away. And this is what you've got at the age of 45. You're still waking up in the afternoon with a hangover like you did when you were 16. And that's as far, that's as much as you've grown in 30 years. And if, I felt really ashamed. And so I said, well, okay, if I'm going to get sober, I want to become emotionally, emotionally sober. Um, and I really didn't know what that meant until I read uh, Emotional Sober uh, Sobriety Books 1 and 2, I believe it was. Uh, but since then, also, I've gone outside of AA literature um, to find um, suggestions and some answers that I've been looking for. And the one is a, a Buddhism, as I spoke about, I've read a lot of Buddhist literature and been taught by some excellent Buddhist uh, 
uh, teachers. Uh, I did a session with Thich Nhat Hanh's, uh, niece one time. She was brilliant. Um, but all that isn't always enough either. I also got into studying uh, Taoism and then and Stoicism. And, and honestly, when I discovered Stoicism, which wasn't that awfully long ago, I came up on this word and I thought, I really don't even know what this is. And the more I looked into it, I said, this could be called emotional sobriety. And ironically, the alternative literature meeting that Tusnua has, we discussed it a few weeks ago. And, and it was, I felt it was grossly misunderstood. Some people were really triggered by it. And they were suggesting that Stoicism means that you should suppress your feelings you have to sell all your belongings. And I thought that sounds like a Buddhist monk life. I don't know. Uh, but once I saw the Dalai Lama interviewed and the journalist who interviewed him said, uh, do you ever get angry? And he laughed. He said, of course I get angry. I just don't let go. I don't let my emotions get out of control like a lot of other people. So I'm not yelling. I'm not screaming. I'm not punching things. I'm not throwing things. Uh, and to me, that's what stoicism is, really. You can feel all the feelings you want. It's not about suppressing feelings. We all know where that ends up, and that's not good. Um, so I, I don't suppress my feelings. I do, I do feel them, and I do identify with them. Um, but uh, to try to control my behaviors is, is a difficult thing. You know, driving is always a trigger. But being in here in Croatia, especially, as I said, being in any office, it's uh, being in a doctor's office, being in an office to get a, a driver's license, just like the United States. I had problems there. Uh, and, and then, uh, oh, my God, the five years it took me to get my legal resident uh, card, five years um, it took me. And probably 30 to 40 times I had to go to this office. Your card is ready. I would go and they'd say, no, just sign this piece of paper. It's really not ready. So I would lose my mind over shit like that and, and uh, you know, and act like a total, well, I guess I should keep it semi G-rated, but act like a total jerk about it, you know? And then I'd be feeling so embarrassed. I remember the one day I went to three different doctor's offices and I called two of the nurses back that spoke English and I felt I had to apologize to them. And they both laughed and said the same thing. They said, Joe, this is normal for us. They said, we get yelled at every single day. I said, I don't want that person to be me. You know, honestly, my goals in life at this point, uh, after 15 years of sobriety, I want to treat everybody I can with love and kindness and compassion. I really do. Do I think it's possible? Yes, I do. I do believe that. I didn't believe that even two or three years ago. I want to help as many people as I can. These things are all very important to me. If you, if you go into an office and you lose your shit, you're not helping anybody. You know, my, my results when, when I became emotionally, uh, having emotional meltdown like that, were not the results I was looking for. You know, it was, it, I was ashamed in front of everybody. I looked, I just felt like this little kid who, who, uh, you know, who'd just gotten scolded in front of everybody, but it was my own doing my own, my own, well, my own doing of that, that brought me there. So I really work hard. Uh, and some of the things that help me on uh, my emotional sobriety are, um, first of all, not looking for an escape route. You know, uh, of course, 
Somebody asked me one time, why did you drink so much? Why did you do drugs? I said, I wanted to get away from myself as fast as possible. And that did it. Um, I started taking somatic therapy. I won't go into what that is exactly, but it's very unique. It's very different than any therapy I've had in the past. And that's really, um, I think it's helping. I think it's really making a difference and a change. Um, listening to music or even trying to play some music. Um, you know, a psychiatrist one time told me, do you play music? And I said, well, a little bit ukulele. And he said, it's horrible. I said, I, you know, I play horribly. He said, doesn't matter. It changes the chemicals in your brain when you do that, even listening to, uh, to music. Uh, calling somebody or going to visit somebody. Last week, I had a hell of a day that I was really angry. I went to a friend a, a friend's house and uh, I felt we had really deep, interesting conversations. And it felt, I felt like a completely different person when I left their home. Uh, meditating, which I've been doing since 99, and I really enjoy it more now than I ever had. Um, there is no right or wrong. There is no being good at it or being bad at it. If you really learn what uh, what the ideal purpose of meditating is, I think uh, exercise has always been very important to me. I was criticized heavily when I got into the program because I spent a lot of time on my bike. I, I would ride two to three hundred miles a week. I went and rode to uh, Blue Ridge Parkway in uh, North Carolina from top to bottom, and uh, so exercising. Here, I ride my bike. I swim in the sea in the summertime when it's warmer. And that just makes me feel, anytime I'm in nature, I feel like it, it kind of like, especially being in the sea, it's like Mother Nature's giving me a hug. I'm surrounded. I can't hear, if I'm underwater, I can't hear any, any man-made noise. I can't hear anybody talking. I can't hear the boats. I can't hear anything. And that to me is just the uh, ultimate peaceful place to be. Uh, the other thing is being with my dogs, you know, they, they were both rescue dogs, but uh, you've heard this before, probably. Um, it appeared as though we rescued them, but, uh, but they really rescued me. And, you know, my life isn't perfect. Uh, I'm just, you know, just ended my third marriage, which is the most difficult thing that I have to admit to. That's very challenging for me. I feel ashamed and I feel... Uh, uh, well, to be honest with you, it's been it, it it's difficult to admit, but it's been a blessing as both of our lives are much calmer. We still live on the same property. We live in different um, because that's what we did here. We ran like a uh, Airbnb. We had four apartments. So now I live in one. She lives in a different one. And uh, we share the dog space. So uh, being with my dogs, as I said, that that's a calming thing, too. So uh, my life has become something I never dreamed it would become. I retired, uh, I don't know, about four months ago, I guess, semi-retired. I still cook for the guests sometimes when they want uh, somebody to cook for them. But, um, and I know, you know, when I tell people this next part, they're really surprised, especially my family. Somebody asked me, if you were to write a book about your life, what would you call it? <clears throat> and I said, the luckiest man alive. And that's how I feel, you know, it, I mean, I've got three divorces. I was a drunk for 30 years. Um, I've been a, a, a jerk to some people. Um, I have worked the steps. I'm not perfect. I will never be perfect. I'm not aiming for perfect. I want to be happy. 
I want to be loving and kind and I want to be compassionate. Those are my things that I want to be. That's what I want my sobriety to stand for. So um, that's all I really have. Um, but I, you know, as far as the luckiest man alive, I think about that on a daily basis. I was like, how damn lucky am I? I really am the luckiest man alive. I've never seen somebody else's life that I would change mine for. So uh, thank you all for being here. Thanks for listening. And if anyone, I don't know if uh, we are allowed to open this to, if anyone has any questions, I can't imagine, but if you have questions, I'm happy to answer or whatever. Or if you want to wait till after, that'd be fine too. But thank you all. I appreciate it.